The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. China and the United States are locked in a global rivalry. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has sparked an energy crisis, and central banks are raising interest rates to combat inflation. What does all this mean for the global economic and political system? Tune in as I discuss what might happen next with Paul Tucker, the former Deputy Governor of the Bank of England. Welcome back to The Exchange, a weekly conversation about an issue of interest for business and financial professionals around the world. I'm Peter Thylarsen, the global editor of Breaking Views, the financial commentary arm of Reuters News, coming to you from London. This week, I'm talking to Paul Tucker, British economist, central banker, and author. Paul spent three decades at the Bank of England, rising to become deputy governor. And since leaving the old lady of Threadneedle Street nine years ago, he's focused on teaching and writing. Indeed, he was a guest on The Exchange four years ago, when we spoke about his first book, Unelected Power, which explored the limits of democracies handing tasks to technocratic institutions. His new book, Global Discord, is out this week. It's a deep examination of the unstable world order, particularly the growing economic and political rivalry between China and the United States. Paul dialed in from the Belgian seaside town of Knokke to share his insights on superpower rivalries, international institutions, ructions in global markets, and the future for independent central banks. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I hope you do too. Paul Tucker, welcome to The Exchange. Thank you very much. It's very good to be here. Or actually, I should say welcome back to The Exchange because um, uh, we talked to you about your last book in the in the pre-pandemic times, which now feels like a very, a very long time ago. There's a lot in the book that I want to sort of try and touch on uh, in this conversation. Uh, and it's a very interesting moment, obviously, to be to be talking about all these these issues. But I just thought I'd start with with you know you say in the introduction we're back in a phase where economic policy and foreign policy converge. And I guess one question that I'd be interested in your views on is is when you think the last phase ended and this one started, where would you where would you sort of put the the break point? I think the last time this was the case was probably during the 1970s after the collapse of Bretton Woods and the rebuilding of, of, of the international economic system. And it's often forgotten that during that period, there were voices saying, American hege- hegemony, it's now, it's now all over. So that kind of rough period. I think, I think we were probably should have been back in that mode by the late 1990s to early zeros. And I I frankly think that was missed. It's become very obvious recently because of the the over-dependencies and the vulnerabilities revealed by COVID and then more lately the war. But if you go back to the decade before that, in 2009, around then, maybe a little bit later, the central bank governor of of China was saying, we've got to displace the dollar, you know, and put a better system in place. Um, by 2011 or 12, the WTO decided an extraordinary case um, where the United States had objected to um, subs- export subsidies from Chinese state-owned enterprises. And the appellate board of the WTO decided that actually these weren't public bodies which was kind of a ludicrous decision, but it was, you could see geoeconomics and geopolitics coming coming together. And then there was kind of a marvelous um, um, thing where in 2017, 
um, Leader G went to Davos and was a big hit there. And I, I suspect that no one in Davos had noticed that only a bit earlier, the Central Committee of the party had released document nine, which known as the seven no's, which was essentially no to liberalism, no to universal values, no to a market economy, no to a free um, press. And yet in the background during this period, the Belt and Road Initiative was being pushed out and it was being pushed out to strategically important sectors, infrastructure sectors, ports. And I think that just as people had difficulty coping with exponential growth during during COVID. So actually, I think the West, Washington, Paris, Berlin, London, didn't understand the significance of exponential growth in China. It's kind of one of the interesting things about almost our generation. Um, the, world the word exponential is so overused and it turns out hardly anybody knows what it means. Yeah, that's, that's, that's definitely true. Although hopefully after COVID, we're a little bit more uh, familiar with those, those kinds of curves. But I think it's interesting. I think it's one of the things that comes across from your book is is sort of that we're now in a world. We now definitely everybody recognises. I think we're in a world where, where you know, China and the US uh, uh, and and arguably the West sort of have seem to have fundamentally different views of of what the you know kind of how the world should work and how how economies should work and what values that they're they're pursuing and so forth. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about this as, as, as a new Cold War, for example, or maybe not even a Cold or maybe a hot war. You, you have a quite interesting analogy in the book of looking at it through the lens of, of Britain and France in the 18th century. I just wonder if you could just explain that a little bit and, and how that might shape thinking about what comes next. I think the significance of that um, as kind of a thought, and, and, and none of the parallels is, is exact in every respect, is that the struggle between Britain and France went on from the late 17th century to the early 19th century. And it was everywhere in, across the planet. And it was in everything, including commerce, most definitely including commerce. And it was not just to do with uh, a rivalry of power. It was to do with different conceptions of government. And say so from the British perspective, the objection at the beginning of the 18th century and the end of the 18th century was against absolutism. Now it had shifted from monarchical absolutism, Louis XIV, to the absolutism of the revolution. But Burke famously objected, the problem with, with France and its revolution isn't, isn't power, it's, it's the wrong kind of power. And it's the, it's not, it's, they won't just reorganize themselves, they will want to reorganize the world. I think that two things, or three things even from that are very instructive. I mean, the contest between the, the West and the People's Republic is going to be everywhere, and it is going to be in everything. And, and, and it is not, thirdly, just about power, who would be top dog for the next quarter of a century or half, half century. It's to do with rival, very different, conflicting conceptions of how to govern a country, what's a good way of life, and how to organize the world. I mean, I think I think for those, the book is a realist book in spirit, but those realists who say this is nothing to do with ideology, I think are plain wrong. I mean, it is something to do with um, ideology. And I think it's gonna be a very bumpy ride. The other thing, just to conclude on the comparison, 
is an interesting thing about the 18th century is that there were periods where France and Britain would reach some kind of accommodation for a while, and then it would break down. And I think it's going to be rather like that. And the, the underlying thought is I don't see any way short of calamity that either the West or the PRC can knock each other out. They're just going to be there as, as these rival um, poles for a long time. I expect this to go on for, for a century or more. <laughs> so we think about how the how the French and British rivalry ended in, or I suppose that period ended in in Waterloo in eighteen fifteen. But um, uh, um, maybe we don't want to. Well, it ended to, to when one side had more allies than the other. Right. And I this is one reason why I think the kind of the comparison is instructive in that, I mean, I think one of the biggest mistakes in U.S. thinking over the past decade or so, changing now not just associated with Trump by any means, is we don't really need these Europeans. We don't really need these other people. We can we can prevail as the the leading state, the leading nation <clears throat> on our own. And and of course, the, the point isn't that that is definitely false. It's it's that that it's by no means certainly true. It's just a completely unsafe assumption and an imprudent assumption for them to for them to make if a prudent assumption would be that China does continue to grow very rapidly, in which case, in a quarter of a century's time, um, China is going to be vastly bigger than the United um, States. Now, they may well not do so for reasons that are familiar um, to people that focus on the economy. But it would be silly to put all one's eggs in that basket, just as I think it was silly in the 1990s for administrations in in the states and Europe to say they're opening up market-wise, therefore they're going to liberalize politically. I mean, I, it's not that that was a crazy thought. What was crazy was, and we will put all of our chips on that possibility. That was that was um, that was wishful thinking. Yes, exactly. One thing that, that sort of follows on from that then is this question of how. US and China or, or China and the West then then interact sort of economically and financially. I mean, people talk about a Cold War, but but the, the USSR and the US didn't start particularly financially into or economically integrated, in fact, hardly at all. And so it was quite relatively easy for them to then sort of be be sort of separate. What we're starting with here is two two much more integrated economies, much more dependent on each other in many ways. And there is also an assumption there that there's that, that unpicking that would be a sort of mutually assured destruction in economic and financial terms that, that makes it sort of unimaginable or at least hard to contemplate. Again, I'm just sort of curious that the way you framed this, how do you sort of see that playing out? I, I think that there will be some unpicking. And I think um, this wasn't really happening when I started writing the book. And as it's published, it is starting to happen. So the measures taken by the United States recently about um, semiconductor um, parts and so on. Um, and when people say this is going to be terribly disruptive, I mean, of course, it would be terribly disruptive if it all happened in one day, one week, one month. But I think it will play out over a, a longer period, both in cross-border investments, some parts of trade, but also in the financial sector and um, the monetary sector too, this kind of challenge against um, against the dollar. Many of the people listening to this will be will know that 
you go back a, even half a generation, uh, Washington was very leery about the Federal Reserve offering what are called swap lines to other um, countries where they lend dollars against the uh, against the collateral of the borrowing country's own own currency. I, I think there will be a competition in offering swap lines between um, Beijing and, and Washington because the one of the one of the themes of the book is that being the issuer of the international reserve currency um, is is both supported by being, if you like, the security hegemon, but also makes that easier because it makes it easier to be the hegemon because it's a cushion in during bad macroeconomic times and so on and so forth. Well, so so it would be it would be very odd if Beijing didn't want to have an international reserve currency that was a rival. Well, then you need to encourage people to use um, your international currency. You know, as an aside. And I, it's it's quite an important aside because the United States and, and Beijing aren't the only players. I think that when some European capitals have rather wished away the dollar, what we could we do to reduce the role of the dollar? In my mind, for a long time, it's been well. If you do that, you're going to have to be prepared to bear the expenditure of defending yourself. Mm -hmm. We are now part of the world, outsourced our defence to the United States. But under terms where we kept a seat at the table um, and got more leisure time to kind of put it in a rather um, trivial way. And they and it's been extremely good, um, the deal for for Europeans. But we ought not to blind ourselves that the role of the dollar and this defense umbrella they provide to us, that these things are are linked. And so if you're on the other side of the world, you would think, well, actually, we've got to erode the role of the dollar. So whether it's trade, investment, banking, the currency, I think the competition will be everywhere. And therefore, I think it will find itself into international institutions. I think it will be I think there are scenarios where this will be very uncomfortable for leaders of multinational corporations. I mean, there are scenarios where they'll be able to navigate through it for a while. And there are scenarios where it it will they will find themselves hopping from foot to foot, not quite knowing what to do. In a kind of a kind of reverse Stockholm syndrome. Yes, exactly. You you talked about international institutions, and obviously one of the big questions is how this world, this sort of bipolar world, gets gets governed. And you 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 spend quite a bit of time in the book talking about some of the, the, the Bretton Woods institutions or the post-World War II institutions, the IMF, World Trade Organization, you know, the Bank for International Settlements. You're fairly damning about them as as institutions in terms of the way they've worked. Do you I mean, do you think they're salvageable or or do we need a new set of bodies that somehow kind of accommodate all these different points of view? I think there's a there's one scenario, if you like, uh, a, a new Cold War where the bifurcation is not quite back to the old Soviet-US separation, but you know, in that direction, where it's hard to see how these international organisations could function as universal organisations. Um, as as you and your listeners know, during the height of the Cold War, the Soviet bloc basically didn't participate in any of the um, Certainly not in the Bretton Woods organisations, and only only latterly in the in the in the GATT. 
Short of that, I think it will be a bit easier in some than others, but it requires them to to exercise some self-restraint. The easiest in some respects is Basel. They will not be able to discuss cyber stuff there. I mean, cyber is an absolute bridge from the world of finance to the world of of spying and sanctions and cyber attacks. It's just, but they've got other things to talk about. But I think it would, it means that the Basel organization, even more than in the past, will be perceived, you know, people will be very sensitive. Are they too close to the banks? And are the banks too compromised in all, all of this? So I think Basel will have to be more open with what in the West we call civil society. I think in the IMF, it's a different challenge. I mean, and, and I, I thought they had turned a corner on this, and I now don't. The, the IMF needs to just stay, stick at base, which is helping to sort out um, economic um, crises. So whether it's lecturing, or that, not lecturing, but telling Indonesia how to organize their economy in 1998-99, or actually a few weeks ago in London saying, we don't like this fiscal package um, because of inequality. They didn't say we don't like this fiscal package because you haven't made a statement about the fiscal framework, which I think would have been a spot on criticism. They, they got into social justice in Britain. Well, that's got nothing to do with them. But it will be under great strain for a more profound reason, which is the United States and Europe have loads of votes at the IMF and China doesn't. So the temptation for China to take their vast resources elsewhere, you, you see this a bit with the with the amount of debt that they have um, provided around the world. And I, they haven't joined the Paris Club, and I suspect China still wants to find a way of dealing bilaterally with countries rather than multilateral with, with countries. But the most awkward of all, I think, is, is trade. I can't see how that easily gets fixed. I mean, the, the shift from the GATT to the WTO was profound in governance terms. Basically, you need you need unanimity to make any change in high policy in the rules of the game. Um, it's not possible for Beijing and Washington to go off and reach a side deal because they went on high policy, because they have to go and take it to the whole of the membership. It's not like the old GAF, that was fundamentally different. And yet, yet then you have cases like, so are subsidies from Chinese state-owned enterprises, are they outlawed or not? No, say China and um, and and as it happens, the appellate body. But that that's crazy, say the West, because these bodies are all an emanation of the state and the party. And there's no basically the WTO needs to let diplomacy back in, but a diplomacy, frankly, amongst leading nations. Don't know whether the UK would be one of those leading nations or not, but against le among leading nations, I don't see how you can do it. Um, where every country on the planet has a veto. So I think the WTO faces a lot of um, challenges. And, and in a world where trade is crunchy, as we've seen under, under as we saw under President Trump. So you mentioned the, the, the recent uh, excitement in the UK over the, over the gilt market and the, and the meltdown in the, in the LDIs and the and the mini budget and the IMF intervention and so forth. I'm interested in your views on that, but 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 more broad. I suppose more broadly, I wonder to what extent you were, you think we're seeing here, you know, some of the consequences of the post two thousand eight reforms, which obviously you were you were involved in, uh, which pushed a lot of 
financial intermediation, financial activity out of the banking system and into into non-bank institutions. You know, I, I guess I wonder sort of with the benefit of hindsight and, and a bit of time and, and sort of some recent examples, how do you look at that structure now? And 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 what do you make of the situation where central banks, including your former employer, the Bank of England, but also the Federal Reserve and others, are sort of periodically having to step in and sort of stabilise things in a way that maybe they're not really set up to do? In terms of bridging this to previous part of the conversation, I, I will assert the West cannot afford another financial crisis. I mean, financial crises are all, always dreadful because they dislocate, not only dislocate economies, but dislocate the social fabric of a country. And we've seen that in both the United States and the UK, perhaps particularly. But during a period of geopolitical rivalry, it would be an appalling own goal for, for the West to again turn on itself and have to cope with the aftermath of a of a crisis. So this is uh, uh, I'm merely saying, but I think it's a big merely saying the stakes are even higher than they were in 2007 eight. And then directly to your question, yes, this is a product of over reliance on monetary stimulus because that pulls down the yield curve. Whereas if it had been a mix of fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus your curve wouldn't have been so flat for so long, meets regulatory arbitrage. My generation re-regulates banking. And so, of course, banking-like activity with excessive leverage and liquidity mismatches and a propensity to runs and forced sales moves out of banking into, into the shadows. Um, words that were banned for a while in the official sector after my generation because they were thought to be, I don't know, pejorative in, in some way. Now, what's odd about this is this isn't a surprise in that the policymakers sitting around the table in 2010, 11, 12, we said, well, actually, this is what will happen. We didn't know about the monetary stimulus. We didn't know the monetary stimulus would go on for so long, but we were completely confident about the regulatory arbitrage process, and therefore we wanted reforms in shadow banking. And I think the mistake that was made was to focus on one manifestation of shadow banking at a time, money market funds and something else. This is a, the approach has become, we'll monitor, and when something's big enough um, to be a threat to, a tangible threat to stability, we will re-regulate it in some way. But just having the United States alone in mind, by something, by the time something is obviously a tangible threat to stability, it's got massive lobbying power, and you can't actually get any changes um, through Congress, and Congress will do their damnedest to stop the SEC or the Fed or whoever introducing um, changes. And I, I think the rest of the world, but especially Europe and, and among European capitals, London, have, have relied too long on being able to carry Washington um, in making reforms. And I think they just need a more general approach. And I, I think it's um, it's urgent-ish. I think they, if you go back a few years, put that together, what could have been done? Some, some quite effective, modest things could have been done. Starting in 2016 or 17, say, it would have been possible for the authorities on both sides of the Atlantic to increase minimum margin requirements, increase minimum 
excess collateral requirements, haircuts as they're known in the industry, which when you invert it is a leverage cap. And that would have been good to, to, to restrain the amount of leverage that was being built up in the non-bank financial system. I mean, and the, 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 so it doesn't surprise me that the central banks have had enter as market makers of last resort. I, I do think when they do so, they must sterilize the, the injection of money and make a greater effort to, to, to separate it from quantitative easing. But those monetary details aside, there are quite important ones. Um, I, I think there are things they're now finding, because they didn't do things earlier, they're now finding themselves being the cavalry. So how many times do non-bank financial institutions have to be bailed out indirectly before we say high levels of leverage and high levels of liquidity mismatch in the non-bank financial sector um, are a threat to stability. And I, the, the thrust of this, that part of the book is to say this is of interest to more than, than I, in the UK, the Treasury Select Committee or in, in Washington, the Senate Banking Committee. I say somewhere towards the end of the book that you know, every time people in Washington or elsewhere block measures to, to constrain some of this excess, they are weakening the United States and the West in the geopolitical struggle. And that I genuinely believe. Because the, the risk is that it builds up and it builds up and then you have another crisis. It's um, you know, one of the things we've learned, but we shouldn't have needed to learn. And actually, in, in the old Bank of England during the last crisis, Mervyn held, Mervyn King held a dinner to discuss this kind of thing. What would be the longer term effects on culture in the broadest sense of the crisis. Well, we're seeing it. There have been social, even constitutional dislocations, because when a big crisis occurs and everyone gets bailed out, it's why, why are you bailing out Wall Street rather than Main Street? And politicians have been poor, I think particularly in the States, to say, well, we're bailing out Wall Street because that's the most effective way of helping you. And then people say, well, it's nonsense. The system's rigged. Yeah. And that's very toxic. And we can't afford to go there again. Um, given the state of geopolitics. It's not that everything else is fine, that the, the, the post-Second World War order or the post-Bretton Woods order is, is, is rooted, you know, liberal openness, liberal freedoms are somehow um, rooted. No, they're not. But then, so, so I guess to follow through on that, on that, and also maybe to sort of refer back to something you explored in quite a lot of detail in your previous book, uh, unelected power, but it's about the sort of, you know, the growth of the sort of the technocratic state, you know, with, with thinking specifically about central banks. I mean, we have now seen quite significantly in the last few years in the US, in the most more recently in the UK, also now in, in, in the EU sort of attacks, political attacks on independent central banks, which go to the heart of that question of sort of, you know, are they legitimate institutions? Do they have a sort of license to operate and so forth? Do you, I mean, you sort of, you sort of anticipated quite a lot of that, I think. Are you, I can't imagine you're surprised by it, but do you sort of think, will this go further or how do you see that playing out? I, I, it, I think in all sorts of respects, it's very uncomfortable. The, the, just for your listeners, the headline of, of unelected power was, 
you can justify independent central banks, but you better constrain them to a core mission of low inflation and banking stability and not have them roaming everywhere else where they become a substitute for government, elected government. And the reason I wanted to do that, um, Peter, is that I think something really interesting um, and not good has happened since the last financial crisis. The one one is it's it's as though um, the, the political classes, and I by no means mean just in Britain, but throughout the Western world, thought this inflation, low inflation stuff, it's 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 easier than it once looked, you know. We've got that licked. And this idea of needing Eddie George or Paul Volcker in the central bank, this person that's rather fastidious about low inflation and rather fastidious about the role of the central um, bank, actually, we can be a bit more relaxed and we can have somebody that's a bit more of an ally that we feel comfortable with um, um, politically and, and, and who isn't the kind of technocratic expert whose idea of fun is sitting around um, in their office during the day reading the latest data. You know, an image that your listeners should have in mind of the two, two great central bankers is uh, Eddie George, Paul Volcker, Alan Greenspan, um, sitting around in their room reading data. Actually, it turns out we don't, people thought we don't need that type any anymore. And why? Because the other thing that happened during the financial crisis, oh, look what they can do. They can steer credit to sectors and regions in, in need. Well, actually, we could do with more than that. We could do with them steering credit away from all those polluting people. And we could do with them steering credit towards um, struggling regions or regions that might need some more dynamism or whatever, or to ailing nationally important firms. Um, put that together. Well, it's not only that you don't need this technoc dry technocrat, actually, you don't want them because they may say no to doing all of um, things. I mean, there was a letter in the FT recently um, by Willem Boiter, a former NPC member in the UK, about why is the central bank involved in energy loans? And I haven't thought about this very carefully. We might say, my, why indeed? Why doesn't the Treasury do that? Um, and the answer is partly, well, the Bank of England's terribly good at it. And it is. There was, there were, it's, so I'm, I am, and that, that strain of line of thought is, we'll give them more and more and more. And of course, that is almost inevitably accompanied with a reaction from elsewhere in the political spectrum, left and right, of, my God, this is outrageous. Um, we need to take more control of them. We need to, but actually, your predicament we're in is only because actually, in a surreptitious way, the politicians did take more control um, um, of them. Why in 2020, um, when COVID hit, I don't mean the spring when markets were dislocated, the governments throughout the Western world did an extraordinary job in many ways of providing fiscal support to households and to small firms. Why wasn't that funded in the debt markets at record low interest rates, lock-in lock in 30 year um, historic low yields? Instead, let's have, let's have the Federal Reserve or the ECB finance it or the Bank of England finance it at a floating rate of, of interest. So the, these are something has has changed and and 
I think this is more true for, um, for the United States and for the euro area. What these inflationary shocks have done, which are not all from the war, there's a health, there's a, an element of domestically generated, domestically generated inflation. They've been reminded of their core job. And when you're perceived to have been chasing the zeitgeist rather than doing your core job, the risk then becomes is that you need to hit the economy harder in order to re-persuade people that you are um, serious about low and stable inflation. The point of bringing it back to that is, oh my goodness, those boring people that sat in their room reading data, Eddie George, Paul Volcker and so on, actually they had the merit that people actually believed in them. They, they, they didn't approve of their narrowness, but they believed they cared about low and stable inflation. I think it's got worse. No, that's definitely true. I guess the, the question, yeah, one of the questions is how much, how much worse will it get? That may be a, a topic for another time, Paul, because uh, I think we're we're running short on time. But um, but you've covered an enormous amount of, of ground, both historically and 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 geographically. It's absolutely fascinating to to hear your thoughts, and I just want to say uh, thank you very much for joining us on the exchange. Well, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to talk about my book, Global Discord. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. And thanks to my colleague Thomas Shum in Hong Kong, who produced this podcast. You can find more episodes of The Exchange and our sister podcast, Viewsroom, on Megaphone, Apple, or wherever you like to listen. And don't forget to check out our columnist's views at breakingviews.com or on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews.